Follow me, some people own stocks. Welcome to Playing Footsie, the podcast where we talk about stocks, investing, and personal finance. Before we start, we want to make it clear that the information presented on this show is for informational and entertainment purposes only. None of us is a financial advisor, and this is not financial advice. Investing in the stock market comes with risks, and we strongly encourage our listeners to do their own research and consult with a licensed financial advisor before making any investment decisions. Now, let's dive into the world of finance and talk about what we're doing with our money. The sucker's going up. Welcome to the Playing Footsie Show. I'm Steve W. It's October the 1st, so it's the start of Q4. I'm here with Steve D and we've got reviews of how the last quarter's gone for us and our portfolios, things that have been happening in the stock market world, especially in the sports apparel world, and some of your questions that we've been having a look at and a think about. But it's things are going reasonably okay here. Steve, how's your week been and how are you? Not too bad, to be honest, Steve. I think I've had a pretty busy week. I was just looking at my portfolio there. I'm up 0.32% on the week, which feels quite positive. I, I wouldn't have guessed that if you would have asked me to, to guess it earlier on. But I did have a good Thursday, and uh, Friday started off really well for me. I was up like 2% at the open or something like that. And then the day sort of dwindled away, and the S&P fell um, quite negative by the end of the day. But I ended up staying up about... Um, just under 1%, so mostly dragged by my um, sort of EU and UK holdings, which had a really, really good day. So uh, quite quite happy with that. I imagine most of our watchers there, I, I seem to remember there's quite a lot of people with sort of UK holdings. I assume they'll have had a, re- a relatively decent day because of the uh, inflation news in the EU and what have you. So, um, yeah, looking okay. Busy, Steve. It's been a bit of a blare. How, how about you? Uh, I didn't have a good week in the stock market at all. Uh, I had a terrible week. I'm struggling to believe that you were uh, doing so well, but congratulations on finishing ahead this week. No, I'm well down. Uh, I'm significantly back on point anything. I'd take point anything percent up at this stage. Not particularly bothered about that, to be honest. Uh, I got some dividends on Friday, and even with those added in, I'm staying behind. But staying behind while you've therefore got money to invest, as I have at the moment not a massive amount is isn't the worst position to be in to be honest if they could hold themselves down a little bit longer that would be no bad thing uh, the week's been interesting i've been i was thinking this week about something i've been trying out for recently so as regular viewers of the show will know when we run out of things to talk about regarding gardening and cricket we talk about food uh, and food delivery services typically i've been trying out one that's not gusto or hello fresh steve uh, it's called lollipop.ai because has to be AI, of course. Have you heard of Lollipop, or have you used Lollipop, or not yet? I think you've told me about Lollipop before. Is this the okay. one that had a four, like a three ingredient stew or something that you quite liked? Oh, really good. Oh, really good four ingredient casserole. But here comes the fuller review of this. Uh, yeah, so we're not in the consumption section yet. We're in the how's your week been bit. So this is where this lives. Um, Lollipop is interesting. So it's different to Gusto and it's different to HelloFresh. When we had Jamie from Stocks and Savings on. He talks about HelloFresh as a, a, a kind of service for people who think Gusto's a bit difficult. Um, that's not me, but I believe in the existence of such people. Lollipop is a service for people who think HelloFresh is a bit difficult again. So we were making jerk chicken from it this week, and two of the ingredients are chicken and jerk seasoning. Uh, it's that kind of thing. So whereas with Gusto, you probably get quite a few little pots of uh, cumin and smoked paprika and whatever else goes into jerk seasoning. I don't even know if smoked paprika goes in there. Don't at me. Uh, and you kind of make your own spice blend and then you typically put that with whatever you're doing. In this case, they're just like, buy jerk seasoning, buy chicken. They're connected to Sainsbury's. So what you do is you click on a bunch of recipes and then it automatically adds the ingredients to a Sainsbury's order. 
for you. Um, and that means a couple of things. It means that you're more or less committed to buying it from there. It also means you're more or less committed to buying it in whatever size Sainsbury's sell the thing in, which isn't always a nice handy little two-person or four-person uh, container like you get from either Gusto or HelloFresh. So um, there's a couple of uh, things you might want to keep your eye on there. So I think there are sort of three main reasons for using a, a meal delivery service like the uh, kind of recipe delivery service, I guess, rather than meal delivery service um like these they are you're worried about food waste and you don't like wasting food um they are you spend too much on cooking and it's inconvenient you have to think about it all the time lollipop scores very well on convenience you just click on stuff and it arrives it's actually slightly cheaper than gusto the way it works out you have to be uh the kind of person who doesn't care about food waste or doesn't mind having stuff left over and sometimes that's fine right extra thing of jerk seasoning can sit in the cupboard um extra things of because you've got way too many i don't know spring onions because they came in a spring onion thing that is sainsbury standard size and you didn't want them all you're gonna have to live with the idea that they're either going to go off or you're going to throw them away or you have to think of another use for them kind of undermining your convenience point here one of the things i like very much about lollipop is the way they market themselves they say they're completely free uh and i think of course you bleed an off you don't actually get any of the food you have to go and buy all the food separately so you pay gusto for no doubt the convenience and the recipe design and so on and the nice little recipe cards that come with it. But um, yeah, of course they, you have to pay those people. They send you the food. Lollipop don't send you the food, so of course they're free. Uh, but I was, yeah, we've been using them for a little while. I think the recipes are meh. I feel myself regressing backwards down the cooking scale. The main reason we're still using them is it's cheaper. So uh, there is an obvious way to correct this, of course. If you sign up to Gusto through the link in the description, uh, you will get however much it is off your first however many boxes. And I'll get some off mine as well, and I can go back to using them and eating better. But, um, yeah, Lollipop is an interesting uh, food, meal, uh, recipe, delivery service. I probably wouldn't recommend it, uh, but um, we're, we're enjoying it well enough, I think, for the time being. It's quite impressive idea though isn't it an asset like mm. food delivery business that just i assume Sainsbury's, Sainsbury's just, i imagine yeah i assume Sainsbury's yeah. just gives them a kickback or, or something on the value of the order that's it's, I quite a, so. it's quite a good idea i must admit i mean considering i mean we didn't think gusto could possibly be making money just because of the amount of and variety of meals they must have a lot of stuff in their factory which just doesn't get ordered and ends up getting binned so that's an impressive idea from um, Lollipop, and I suppose it's quite an easy sell when they go to Sainsbury's and say, look, we want 1% or 2% 2 of the order value, and if you don't get any orders, you don't get anything. I mean, you mm -hmm. assume that they're going to they're gonna take that up. Um, I think they're lighter than light in terms of assets as well, actually. They do say they develop some of their own recipes, but most of their stuff is just lifted off of BBC Good Food and some other websites, and they're perfectly upfront about that. They're just like, here you are. You like the BBC Good Food? Um chicken biryani thing um click on this here come all the ingredients from sainsbury's for you in your sainsbury's order pretty pretty impressive idea steve i'm, I'm quite i'm quite impressed with that something i know you uh you've also tried this week steve was a was a vanilla huel yeah did that how did that go well that we were talking about food until this point um i decided this week i would try replacing one of my lunches with a huel um, because Steve did it once, and I tend to do most of the things that he does, and they tend to end quite badly. 
uh, and this one is is no exception. Um, uh, the way you describe Huel, um, I've never tried Huel before, by the way, before this. Uh, I read a review of it in like, some of its quite earlier days when it was just a basically self-mixing powder uh, thing that you get and you add whatever you say to it, milk or water or whatever it is. And the reviews of it were pretty terrible. Let's be honest, the reviews were, it doesn't taste nice at all. It tastes actively bad. And as someone who does enjoy stuff like protein shakes uh, and so on, they taste pretty good these days. They've managed to kind of get the flavors on those, in some cases, really, really impressively uh, down. Strong work there. And it's been year, literally years since, might even be a decade perhaps, since I thought about trying um, Kewl. And I thought, well, maybe they've improved things, right? In that time, that's a long time. And they're still here. Uh, and very much, I think very much still a thing. I haven't checked them for kind of profitability or anything like that, but but they don't show, so they ain't show any signs of going anywhere. So they're fairly well established by this point. There are people who wander around in Huel branded t-shirts and the like. So I thought, well, maybe if they've sorted the taste out, this could be a good thing because it's no great secret that I, uh, if you scroll back through some previous episodes, I'm bigger and heavier than I once was and not in a good way. So I thought, well, let's try switching out for some Huel occasionally and, and getting what is apparently complete food. And you know this because they tell you on the bottle because they have to tell you on the bottle because otherwise it wouldn't look like it. I tried the vanilla Huel, which is apparently their most popular one, according to their website. It's revolting. Uh, it's absolutely horrific. Steven said it tasted kind of artificial. It doesn't. It tastes like dirt, uh, which is what it tastes like. It's very natural tasting. It's absolutely horrible. It's very effective as a way of uh, replacing your meals because after I'd had like two sips of it, I didn't want to eat anything at all ever again. Uh, I gradually worked my way through it over the course of, it must be the longest, one of the things it's meant to do is like speed up your lunchtime, right? So you can just drink that and get back on with whatever the hell you were doing if you're like a software developer, which I'm not. But it made my lunchtime last like forever because I spent most of it staring at this three quarters full bottle of Huel and thinking I'm going to try and get all of that down somehow. Uh, and then it felt like, as I said to you, my entire digestive system had gone on strike and I didn't want anything else. It's not even a, OK, now let's eat something else proper to take the taste away or something. So it was it was kind of effective in that it did replace my lunch and I want my lunch back. Well, I'm also going to complain again about Huel, so I, I got the idea from friend of the show, Damien, who will probably comment in the section that we're, we're both doing it wrong. But um, uh, basically, I wanted to use it as a breakfast replacement because rather than having, you know, an orange juice, a, a yogurt drink, some cereal, some milk, you know, toast some days, whatever, I just wanted to be able to pick something out the fridge and go to work. Um, so I bought a bag of the powder uh, fuel fairly recently. And that does not mix. It does not mix. At least one of the things you can complement the, the, the ready-made drink is, is that it is mixed. It's like drinking a pot of like super glue, but it is it is mixed. But this just doesn't mix. You end up with like golf ball sized clumps of powder that you just like you just like randomly chew on and it's like, oh I just didn't I didn't mean to do the cinnamon challenge this morning. Do you know what I mean? You end up coughing oh, clouds of fuel all over the all over the kitchen. So I have managed to find a way to get it to actually combine, and that is essentially to bang it in a Nutribullet for about two minutes and then leave it in the fridge overnight. And at some point, the sand, the sandiness of it eventually turns to the gluey sort of jelliness, and you end up drinking a, a watery, with clumps of jelly, artificial vanilla flavor, which I've since put honey in it to try and uh, take the taste of it. So, yeah, I didn't mind the ready made drink, Steve. 
I, I'll, I'll probably eat anything in the morning, to be honest, to save me some time. But uh, the, the powder stuff is rubbish, and I, I'm not into it at all. I think I was saying to my wife, the things it does to your body as well, like the, 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 the adapting period is, is not good. You're like, a, you're like a marching brass band walking around the house. And, um, yeah, it's uh, I, I, I don't think I would ever do the powders well, to be fair, I'm not. I'm not doing the powders again. I'm not buying the drinks at all because the drinks are bloody expensive. They are really expensive, to be honest. I paid three pound fifty in Tesco for them, and you may well say, "Look, buy them off a shelf in a supermarket. They're going to be uh, slightly marked up." Three pound fifty is about as cheap as I could find them anywhere, unless I bought a pack of about six or twelve of them or something. And you can get them direct through Huel for about three pound twenty odd or so. And on Amazon, when I tried to buy a pack of six, it was more than three fifty to go. And I thought, no way am I getting those. But never before have I been so glad that I didn't just jump into a new fatty thing and be like, right, this, this is me. I'm not going to buy anything else for the next week or so. Just these six things, and that's going to be me between breakfast and dinner. Whatever those two things are, um, probably some more two-ingredient recipes. But that's the beauty of the powder, right? Because the powder is under a quid a meal. So it's like ADP a meal. So ADP a meal, if it combines well and you can stomach it, and you know it, it's a it's a breakfast replacement, but at the end of the day, this was just this was just not it. So I don't understand why Huel <laughs> isn't better. Uh, it's yeah, had long yeah. enough now to be more mixable and so on. I understand why it tastes horrible uh, because it, it made with pea protein, and uh, my wife got the vegan protein from my protein uh, a couple of years ago now, or so, or from a different place, um, and it's horrible. Uh, basically she's not a vegan but the protein they get from them is absolutely disgusting it tastes like peas which is what it is and if you don't like chocolate flavored peas uh or um honeycomb with a pea hint to the back of it um not a good option here and that sort of explains to me why huel is disgusting as well be interested if anyone else does huel to let me know in the comment section what i'm doing wrong i've had a friend reach out to me and say well you've got to shake it for 10 minutes to get it combined like, shake it for 10 minutes that's exercise i'm not doing that so how long it take me to get something else. Yeah. Let's move on, Steve. What else you got? Uh, well, it's been a tough Q3, but um, my I suppose it's the time where we should start thinking about what we've, or reporting on what we've done with our portfolios over the last quarter, because it's been a quiet week elsewhere, and it's the natural kind of time to be, to be taking stock a little bit. Not an awful lot happened in mine. I think this is the first quarter that I, since I've been, quote-unquote, investing reasonably seriously and probably before that that i didn't actually sell any shares that i owned which is um yeah very unusual so q2 for me was a large trimming down and consolidating and undiversifying i guess concentrating i suppose is more the word down into the things that i had the highest conviction in for long-term holdings and so on and this was mostly just a case of adding to them but not in any great way because it was only dividends coming in so i bought a little bit more in Bank of America, Citigroup, uh, and those two were both less than a 1% increase in the number of shares I own of each. Um, Kraft Heinz and Aviva added about 6% to each of those holdings. For Terra, a couple of percent. And I've added in a small new purchase in primary health properties because it's nice buying things that are under a quid and owning like a 100 of them. Um, and that's roughly all she wrote for this one. So very much... a. Uh, it feels very kind of Charlie Munger-like, my, my 13F, for this particular week. I mean, even Charlie Munger doesn't do that. It doesn't even buy anything with the uh, Daily Journal stuff. I don't know what they do with all their dividends they get, because they own mostly banks and things that we're paying them 3 4% a year, something like that. Um, 
not entirely sure what they do with all their stuff and why they're not reinvesting, but it's an unenthusiastic 13F report from me uh, this time out. How about you? So mine's a pretty crappy quarter as well. Uh, I was, at the beginning of the quarter, I was about double my benchmark, which was VWRP, and now I've fallen to being about 50% ahead of it. So benchmark's at about 8, and I'm at about 13, 12 or 13, so... uh, not been a great quarter, Steve. Can't, can't celebrate that. Um, my portfolio has operated about how I expect it to. So uh, on upside days, it tends to be in between the S&P and the NASDAQ. Uh, but that often means that I get um, NASDAQ downside when it all goes wrong. So uh, I've had a few a few days of that over the quarter. Um, in terms of buying and sells, I don't think I've done an awful lot. I had a quick look through um my trading two on two history. So I've been using CSH two for deposits all quarter. I've traded sort of in and out of that when I needed liquidity. And I've bought Forterra, Four Corners, Airtel Africa, Autodesk, Entain, Rightmove, and Adgen this quarter. Uh, I exited Netflix uh, at $433 at the beginning of the quarter. I exited Sonova flat and I exited Spirit Sack at £109.20 a share. And I've got new positions in Bloomsbury Publishing, Zender Group, Fortinet, Argenics, and Money Supermarket for me. So, so much for operations slimmed down that lasted a quarter. Um, a decent quarter in terms of dividends, Steve, because I know people like to hear about dividends. Uh, 388 quid versus 358 quid in the previous quarter. However, 270 quid came in the first month of the quarter when Airtel, ISP6, ETF, Alexandria, Four Corners, Nintendo, Forterra, and Prologis all paid out within uh, within a few days of each other. So, um, pretty decent, really, Steve. I'm relatively happy with where I am at the moment. If it stays like this, uh, you know, with me beating the benchmark by 50%, I'll be very, very happy in retirement. Dividends-wise, I was also higher than I was in the previous quarter, mostly due to, in fact, my dividend was higher than, than what you described there, I think, but mostly due to a large-ish Forterra uh, dividend, which hasn't happened before and is unlikely to be repeated anytime in the near future, I think. Uh, there's a dividend coming from Forterra, I think, in the next in the next couple of months, but it's, uh, or might be sooner than that, but it's not particularly, it's nowhere near the size of the last one. So I'm thinking of this as a kind of one-off lump dividend, which is fine, welcome, uh, pleased to have it and so on, but not really part of the kind of general thesis. I also should have mentioned, since it is strictly in my ISA, but I don't think of it as part of my ISA, my realty income investment, which is currently being, well, was a bunch of premium bonds, uh, that has gone uh, pretty poorly. We'll come back to realty income in uh, about half an hour or so but that went yeah not terribly well and we had a good look at that and thought i'm gonna keep going with it for the time being but i've continued to pick up more and more and more shares i'm getting to the point where i'm almost adding half a share a go at a dividend which tells you roughly how many i have um adian adian must be is adian part of the reason your portfolio has done well this week steve i know you said it was europe and europe in general this kind of done okay there but Adyen took a bit of a hammering um and i think it's probably well down on the quarter but it's it had a, a little bit of a jump as, as some i think some analyst coverage turned favorable on them and as analysts started thinking well look when you get to this price okay buy it uh, rather than overreacting to that trading update that we talked about what, five four weeks ago maybe 
Yeah, so I mean, IGN was up 5% just on Friday alone, so it had a fairly big jump, but uh, Bloomsbury had a decent week, it was up about 3.5% on Friday as well, VAT Group was up uh, 2 or 3 of the days and finished up 3 and a bit percent on Friday, Right Move was up 2.5% on Friday, Igenix up 2% on Friday, Forterra up just short of 2% on Friday as well, so um, I had a really positive Friday which dragged me from um, you know a potential negative to to sort of meekly positive, so um uh, yeah basically europe europe came through for me on thursday and friday uh america came through for me a bit on uh thursday uh and that ended up being a sort of roundly positive week for me where are you up to at the moment on isa contributions for the year you were so we started out in april and we had different attitudes right you were running under a banner of um don't lump it in with a view to probably failing uh at least in places and i'd gone with an approach of I don't care. I'm going lumping uh, when I see some approaches with a view to not even pretending, uh, to be honest, like I was going to spread this out. Um, I have completed my ISA uh, deposits did so a while ago, which is why there's not much action going on here, because I'm not about to launch cash at something in the ISA. So um, where are you up to on that? How's lumping going? Doing all right. I've got £13,705 in. And oh, I've got then you are sitting about... quite nicely with some time to go and some nice looking prices. Yeah. 69% Steve would you believe what a wonderful number uh, and uh, I've got about 600 and about another 5 so I've got about in another 1100 quid that I could put in this month it probably will go in but um, like I say don't lump it in as turned into lump it into CSH2 and then see how you mm-hmm. go kind of thing so um, interesting that's how I'm doing at the moment I actually am a bit short of cash at the moment so I, I will hit the ISA um, um, uh, limit but uh, liquidity is a little bit thin at the moment because uh, the wife has decided she needs a super king bed, Steve. So that's where that money's going. She personally? Y- yes, because she wants to be as far away from me as possible, evidently. I see. After um, heel. Yeah. Oh. Um, be interesting to see how you go when you've got the little one uh, for that as well. The reason being uh, sleep is the thing that ours finds uh, challenging and one of the things we've done some of the time he's not been very well just lately and not been enjoying life at night uh but he has gone in with my wife in our bed and i've moved to the spare room uh lately which is absolutely fine i would much rather do that than we all try and squeeze in together and nobody gets in sleep but it's interesting to think about kind of I, i will forget by the way uh and i reserve the right to forget every quarter until i don't know at least another three years that you're no longer in Netflix. Um, I remember you telling me that was basically thesis complete. You bought it at a time when it didn't need very much to go right. And some stuff went right. Quite a bit of stuff went right, actually. But it didn't really need all that stuff to go right. So you thought, okay, where's the kind of upside uh, here at the moment? And that's... I will forget that you don't own that, though, because that's one I associate very closely with you, having um, discussed it with you quite a bit at the time when you were looking at buying it and owning it and subscriber numbers were just starting to go, oh, no, the wrong way. Uh, slightly. Hmm. Um, when I look at Nexus, it's come quarter, back a long I think way, it's that, mostly yeah. just dividends for me. Hmm. Yeah, because yeah. Netflix has come back a long way, Steve. So from from I saw a four three two ninety two, and just looking at it now, it, it's gone back down to three seven seven fifty three. So it's a it's a healthier kind of range for a buy. And I'm not particularly interested in this region, but um, it, it is a a better region than four three three for buying than than. Uh, uh, well, that's yeah, and it's probably a bit more profitable than it was, so you're probably getting more coming back the other way in terms of cash. Uh, and it's 
less competition now as well. I know people think that the, the, the amount of competition has, has probably increased, but the actual strength of the competition has decreased. Um, I think we're seeing Disney Plus, Discovery, HBO, all of those kind of services now um, where everybody said, oh, well, they're just going to come and beat Netflix up. Uh, the strength of competition has really diminished. And, and actually, the, out of all of those companies people would have said to you well paul said quite regularly that netflix is the weakest of a lot of them it's actually turned out the opposite way around and where netflix is is probably the best at generating content generates content that the vast majority of people like and has actually beaten up all of the surrounding uh all of the surrounding companies so netflix has been very very impressive but at 430 it's a different kind of story to at 200 it's a real Motley Fool winner, that one, isn't it? That you know, that's one of the ones where they kind of called this a long, long time ago and have been on it for a while, and 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 hats off to them, right? Uh, it seems to me like recently they've picked a lot of losers, and people will, I think, with some justification, point to the fact that their style has had a pretty strong tailwind behind it for the last however long. They will point out in return that that's not an accident. Uh, that's kind of there was a deliberate tailwind there that they were looking to exploit for share prices, and they were telling you the best way of going about doing it. And 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 most of the time they've been correct. Tide turning a little bit here, so now all of a sudden I imagine their stuff is less popular. But yeah, Netflix is a real uh, a real motley fool winner. Um, you're anticipating to move steadily through Q4, then, uh, Stephen? Not go not go too crazy with anything just yet. It depends what happens, doesn't it? It mm-hmm. all depends on, on, on what's going to happen. So we we think um, Baby will likely be here the last week in November, so I'm probably not going to do an awful lot in December. Um, but I, I probably will have about six weeks off after the baby uh, is born because it'll fall into holiday yep. time, um, paternity time, and then we have a, a, a Christmas shutdown at work. So... Um, so so yeah, I should have six weeks off. So I'm, I may have things to do. I may not have things to do. Um, I, I'll guess I'll see. But it might be one of those quarters where you do quite a lot at the beginning of it and not a lot at the end. I'm not entirely sure. No, it'll be interesting to see how this one develops. I'm I'm looking forward to Q4. Actually, it feels like somehow a weirdly fresh start from uh, at the end of Q3, even though it's completely not, and I'm not expecting it to be particularly dramatic in my own um, stuff. Before we move on, a quick one from Steve and me. If you're enjoying the show, please do give us a like, a comment, and a rating on whatever platform you're listening on. And make sure you share the podcast with your investing friends. It helps us a lot, and we're really looking forward to building out something that you guys can get some value from and that we can have some fun in making. So do like, subscribe, and back on with the show. The sucker's going up. I guess... One, there are lots of stocks that have been on my radar just lately because when prices come down and alerts start going off, and quite a few alerts, uh, we were saying that I'd forgotten why I set them. I set them, I think, in some cases years ago, and, and maybe in some cases I'd even forgotten that the idea they might come back to those sort of levels and revisit them and thinking, well, they were one-off kind of pandemic-ish things, and, and some are making their way back there. A company called Camden Property Trust that I had an eye on a while ago has now made its way to triggering my alert system. but. Um, I didn't have an alert set up on Nike. I'd long written that off as a kind of overpriced, um, well, perennially overpriced, but perennially very good company. Their stock had been taking a bit of a hit lately, but they've had a jump uh, towards the end of this week. So that's probably just moved them away from my thinking. I was, I was probably not a million miles from 
and considering them quite seriously. But, um, Steve, what happened there? So Nike reported this week, Steve, that was a pretty interesting um, set of results, really, because on the face of it, you would have looked at this and said, headline is Nike reported revenue that falls short of what Wall Street expected, um, but delivered on earnings and gross margin estimates, which, you know, depends on what you're after here. But um, the market seems to really like it, Steve. And I think there's some hidden good stuff in here, and I think there's some hidden bad stuff in here. So uh, we'll just quickly shoot through it and uh, rattle through it, and, and uh, I'll pass it over to you and see what you think. But earnings per share, Steve, came in at $0.94 cents versus $0.75 cents expected. So that sounds like a small amount in terms of monetary amount, but it's actually a big beat. Um, that's quite, quite, quite a handy beat. Uh, revenue was one point two, uh, sorry, twelve point nine four billion. Uh, Wall Street expected twelve point nine eight billion. So uh, a smaller, a smaller miss in terms of the top line. Uh, during the quarter, footwear sales rose about four percent to eight point four billion dollars, making up about sixty eight percent of total sales. Uh, apparel was down one percent to three point four billion. Um, net income was a total of one point four five billion. Compared with 1.47 billion per share, uh, sorry, 1.47 billion a year earlier. Um, sales up to 12.94 billion, which was up about two percent from 12.69 billion a year earlier. Revenue for the quarter was just shy of the 12.98 billion analysts that had expected, according to the data I saw on LSEG now, Steve, which Refinitiv has been uh, has been rebranded to. Um, so judging by the questions on the call, I, I, I think that analysts are focused on a few areas. So they were basically Nike's recovery in China, uh, its relationship with its wholesale partners and how the resumption of student loan payments will impact sales. I think they were also kind of keen to see uh, margins recovering after bloated inventories, uh, high promotions and supply chain woes, which has contributed to the uh, the lower profits over the last couple of quarters. So. During the quarter, gross margin actually fell by a percentage point to 44.2%, but it was higher than the 43.7% analysts had expected. Um, the company attributed the gross margin drop to higher product costs and currency uh, exchange rates, but those trends were offset by some price increases, uh, which contributed to this, um, this earnings beat. Sales in China, Steve, grew by about 5% compared to the year uh, ago period uh, to about $1.7 billion, which fell short of the $1.8 billion analysts had expected. Um, during the previous quarter, um, Nike had actually seen sales jump 16% in China compared to the year ago period, but uh, they didn't really mention at that time. Uh, that was actually a point where China was still in the COVID lockdown, so uh, not that impressive. <laughs> Um, so Nike remains quite bullish on China from the call, and the region's economic recovery has been a bit of a mixed bag. Um, China had a sluggish July. Retail sales picked up in August. Um, they rose about 4.6% year-on-year, and that was actually beating an expectation of about 3% growth at Reuters. So Nike might have a good reason to be uh, quite bullish on China. It's probably a good little growth sector for them. Um, so Nike saw sales jumps in every region they operate in, um, except for North America, which is its largest market by revenue. North America fell 2% from the period, um, the year ago period, to about $5.42 billion, just above the $5.39 billion analysts had expected. In Europe, the Middle East, and Africa, sales were up 8% to $3.61 billion. That was compared to $3.51 billion that analysts had expected. Sales in uh, LATAM and Asia-Pacific came in about 2% higher at $1.57 billion, which was just shy of the $1.59 billion analysts had expected. So you can see there the two regions in uh, that, that basically hit their top line that um, you know, the cause of the shortest. The Converse brand, Steve, 
It was awful. It fell short of expectations for two quarters in a row now. Uh, sales came in at 588 million, which was down 9% compared to a year ago period. Analysts wanted 660 million. Um, when it came to wholesale revenues, uh, Nike's relationship with those partners has been a bit rocky recently. Um, the company, which is, you know, that's been the, the big drop in Foot Locker and things like Macy's and things like that. Um, so the company's sort of pivoted to a direct-to-consumer model, which cuts out these middlemen, drives sales online and to its stores at the expense of these wholesale accounts. Um, but the problem here is that Nike has had massive inventory issues throughout the whole of 2023, and it's actually relied on those partners more than ever to pass through that merchandise and get it sold. So over this quarter, it's actually restored its relationship with um, Macy's and Dick's, um accounts had it actually cut uh only a couple of quarters ago in favor of its dtc strategy um analysts are expecting nike's wholesale revenue to be pretty sluggish through the quarter because excess inventories have just been a problem throughout the whole retail industry um some wholesalers uh are being a bit more particular in what they order because they don't want another backlog at the moment uh, but wholesale revenue during the quarter Steve, was flat compared to the year ago, seven billion dollars. So um, not a not not an issue really there at the moment. Inventories fell ten percent to eight point seven billion. This was uh, driven by a decrease in units, but offset by a better product mix uh, and some higher manufacturing and production costs. A um, couple of last bits, Steve. But CNBC alerted me to a recent um, Jeffries survey on U.S. consumer spending. That found about 54% of respondents plan to spend less on apparel and accessories. And meanwhile, 46% plan to spend less on footwear. And that doesn't bode well for Nike, Steve. And I'll, and I'll tell you why. Because at the moment, we've got student loan impacts uh, about to restart on Nike as well. And that, that group of people is one of Nike's uh, major cohorts. So I would assume that this is only going to get worse um just quickly on guidance guidance i stayed up all night listening for the guidance steve and they put it right at the bloody end of it and didn't even give it any number it was just mid single digit revenue growth gross margin held the same i mean this is a ceo who, who uh mispronounced one of the main sports stars names in the last quarter um but there you go uh guide was fine mid single digit revenue growth is 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 fine. So I, I ran it through the reverse DCSD just because it's fun to do so and to see how it came out. I think you're going to need about 10% growth um, per annum in free cash flow here to justify the valuation. The top line is obviously moving a lot slower than that at the moment. And I was working on a 2% reduction in share count per year over 10 years to make the valuation more palatable. Um, Nike has authorization to buy back about 18 billion of stock, but it's already used a decent chunk of that authorization. Um, so yeah, I think it's still quite pricey, Steve, but I don't think it's beyond the realms of what's possible should the economy get ticking along again. Um, is it a buy for me? It was a buy for someone, Steve. It shot up 6% immediately after the results, uh, but I think there's a bit too much uncertainty in the whole thing here for me to really, really think about a move. Great business, though. Yeah, really good business. Arguably the best at this kind of thing, which is why it trades at that uh, sort of premium-ish valuation, even after a bit of a drop. I think I find it hard to see where ten percent growth is going to come from off of mid-single digits. I think you said revenue growth. I'm not sure that buybacks are going to carry that all that way, and I'm not sure that they have any real kind of operating leverage either. They very much seem to be a kind of make and um, 
distribute kind of area. So there's sort of two, three, well, two and a half, maybe three, maybe things that kind of stood out for me there. One was a shift from uh, wholesaling to DTC. Another was uh, a resurgent, uh, resurgent, re-emergence of China as a major thing. And the other is basically the state of North America and the US consumer. That's connected to the China thing. And when I try and think about what is it that's going to cause that jump in the night share price recently, I kind of figure it's got to be the China thing because that's the only one that I kind of view positively here. So thinking about the wholesale versus DCC thing, this is quite a familiar story. It looks to me like across quite a few apparel uh, manufacturers, especially Doc Martens. So, so you have people who are running themselves in a standard. You sell things to uh, retailers. Retailers sell things to customers, basically, and they kind of operate in the middle of you. The downside to that is that you can't sell them as expensive. So your margins are lower in this situation. The upside to that is you don't have to worry about inventory in quite the same way. You don't have warehousing costs. You don't have to try and figure out how to get things to and from your warehouses and to your customer and so on. You have to manage distribution and so on like that. Um, Nike and both Nike and Doc Martens have been announcing kind of inventory uh, buildups in various places and stuff being in the wrong place at the wrong time. And they've been turning out that this DTC thing that was going to be um, the future of everything it may well still be the future of everything, but it's not entirely as straightforward as it once was. There is a reason that people just went, ah, ship them all off to those guys um, and, and then went with uh, and let them worry about how to store this stuff and sell this stuff and uh, ship this stuff if need be and so on. So that looks like a sort of temporary headwind, but it's a really interesting one to see Knight going back to its wholesale units for, for me. Doc Martens, I think, is planning on powering through, and I think they will succeed in powering through. But that has done all kinds of damage to their um, share price in terms of, and they've been issuing profit warnings like nearly every other quarter, it seems, for for this. So, so I was interested in that wholesale versus DTC thing. Weakness in the U.S. consumer. Um, that looks to me like it's. It's not good for Nike, certainly, as a discretionary kind of purchase. Um, and I think one of the things you see in there is kind of COVID surplus balances for when money got thrown around all over the place is starting to wear down now a little bit. Add that to restarting student loan uh, payments that people have got to make and so on. And all of a sudden, everything's just that little bit tighter than it once was. We've actually seen recently the kind of consumer discretionary sector struggling more broadly as people know this is coming for it's not just Nike that's not a, a company specific thing the the wholesale retail the wholesale DTC thing is uh, company specific to some extent this really isn't this is across North America but as you point out North America is their biggest market and uh, they will go to an extent the way that goes it's going to be very difficult for anything else to offset that in the short or medium term um, I guess I'm sort of pleased with the idea there's there's emerging market possibilities there for them over the long term that might support some some better growthy options but the issues with the u.s consumer um i would say they're an issue for both nike and you but i think you're going to be all right the weakness in the u.s consumer i think is one of the things that ought to worry your no recession um prediction in the u.s or soft landing stuff i think though i I don't think there's enough time left in the year for this to run out so i think you're going to be okay i think you're going to get through with the uh the no recession prediction for 2023 i think it'll probably come later so i think i'll be wrong on that and i'll be wrong by being i don't have to make it again (laughs) i don't have to make that prediction again no you don't uh you'll have to be right once in this kind of thing and you'd have done quite well if you'd um found a way to manifest that in some form of a bet um, yeah, reopening China is the kind of main bright spot that I see in this kind of report. Nike is, is 
pretty good and China is obviously a big, big market. So that's kind of where I think positively maybe going some way towards offset in that North American. Um, short term, medium term, don't know how long I see this running issue. Yeah, I think that's that's the growth story. I think if you're a, you're going to be a bull on Nike, you've got to think that America ticks along at 2 to 3% growth. That's going to always generate something for you. But you've got to think that a growing middle class in China, growing middle class in India, growing well, growing middle class in all of the sort of developing world is what's going to push Nike onwards. Um so I think that that's got to be the sort of frame of your bulk. So if you think that um, China isn't going to come up with its own its own kind of brand, or you know Adidas isn't going to somehow win out in China, or an other brand is going to become the brand of choice in China. And you think Nike is going to continue its sort of American dominance elsewhere, and well, sort of developed world dominance elsewhere. Um, then uh, then there's a real bull case there for somebody who thinks that. Um, my issue is is that. I don't really know anything about those two markets. I don't know anything about the Chinese market. I don't know anything about the Indian market. Um, so I don't know whether they're going to love Nikes or anything else. And that's probably where the vast majority of my uncertainty comes from. I don't even really know how you develop that knowledge, Steve. I don't know how, how, how you would go about getting yourself some certainty there. Yeah, I worry about that quite a lot, mostly because I don't think there's anything particularly durable. Uh, there this isn't a case where i associate tremendous brand power and staying in people's minds and those kind of things i know burberry which is uh uk listed um stock and i think it, i mean it is a british business um does very well in china i think that's where they're kind of popular i don't associate them as being particularly strong over in this country but they they do a lot of their sales in china which is a big market and if you if you believe this emergence of the Chinese middle class thing, that story isn't going terribly well at the moment. But if you think there's something there, that's probably the best reason to be interested in that particular stock. I'm, I I would also stay out of this mostly because I just, weirdly, I don't think it's cheap enough uh, to interest me. I get that in general, they've managed to do a good job of avoiding some of the problems that the likes of Adidas have had with celebrity endorsements and so on, even if they can't pronounce the names of these people accurately, which is... You know, not great. It makes it seem like your CEO is a kind of Bob Swan type who doesn't really know what he's doing, but looks at spreadsheets all the time. In general, the company has handled them pretty well. Uh, they've had a, a terrific run with stuff like Air Jordans, and you've seen Under Armour and Adidas and several others get into into issues here. But I think I think probably just not quite cheap enough, especially with other things available at the moment, is where I come down on this one. Yeah, I think I think I agree with you there. Although some of this. Um... Some of its sort of um, earnings power has been eroded by these, um, you know, these high promotions and um, and high inventories that they've needed to ship. So some of that PE ratio, when you look at it, which is about thirty at the moment, is masked a little bit by sort of falls in profitability that they should get back. But to say that a stock is down, uh, well, it w- it will have been down nearly thirty percent um, if you would have looked at uh, Thursday close just before, you know, just before earnings. To say that it's it was down thirty percent, and both of us still look at this and think that's probably not a price that I want to buy at. Kind of shows you where it wasn't in in the first place. So um, it was priced like it had uh, visa like margins, which mm. it, it doesn't it really have. Doesn't. It's it, you know it's the yeah, and a lot of spend has to go into sort of maintaining this brand as the best brand around. Um, so it's not like they can just say, well, look, if we stop spending in sales and marketing, uh, we would be this this much profitable. Well, you can't do that. That that, that just doesn't 
uh, doesn't wash or it wouldn't wash for more than a year or so. So, um, yeah, I, I, I don't know. See, I think I'm in the same uh, boat as you. I'd be interested if anyone in the comment section has been like buying this one up rapidly and just like thinks that you know we're, we're missing something here. I'd be interested to in see what you think we're missing. But um, yeah, hit, hit us up in the comment section or in the comment part of um, Spotify, the question part of Spotify, and just um, let us know what you think. Yeah, I'd be interested in whether anyone kind of already owns this. It strikes me as, I mean, it is a very different type of business to uh, Visa, I think. Visa, I don't think it has Visa's, it definitely doesn't have Visa's margins such as, so much as provable. I don't think it has Visa's kind of moats either, actually. I get the kind of decentralized finance stuff, um, but I think Visa's done a reasonable job of showing some quite a lot of strength um, there, and I kind of think... Uh, Nike is Nike is clear head and shoulders ahead of the rest of its competition here. It's priced like it's clear head and shoulders ahead as well. But this strikes me as something with without the same kind of switching costs uh, available in the same way. And maybe I just don't get it. Um, almost certainly, I just don't get it. it. Nike always comes out well in the kind of teen surveys, doesn't it? In terms of what the uh, what brands people like and what they're wearing and so on and so forth. And I mean. It, apart from Lululemon in the kind of athleisure category, as it's known. I tend to think Nike performs fairly strongly. I always tend to think whenever I'm buying shoes or trackies or whatever it is, um, I'm reluctant to pay for that particular brand over other brands. I mean, it's it's not an area where I'm, I'm going to say I'm brand loyal, but I'm not brand indifferent either. I tend to, um, especially in the footwear region, by stuff I've heard of, but not always the most expensive stuff I've heard of. I'm currently running around in a pair of Reebok uh, decks, for instance. So, um, you know, they're uh, an outfit I've heard of, but not a random lot. Um, I looked at Hoka's, actually, uh, by the way, Steve. Bloody hell, they're expensive. Yeah, they are. They are expensive, but uh, a big uh, a, a, a big emerging brand in, um, mm. in America. Oh, that was one of the things them. I was... Yeah, well, that's the one of the things I was looking for. Well, I, I saw um I saw uh Jack Cow on the um mm. Baron Streetwise podcast. He was looking for a new pair of trainers and Hokers was one that he looked at and he said the the sort of test of when you know your brands hit mainstream is when the doughy people start wearing them. Yeah. Um and uh, he thinks that Hoker is uh, getting into that kind of that kind of area. Um but he's a new balance wearer, Steve, so what would he know? I actually yeah. bought my first pair of Nike, Steve, last Christmas. Um, oh, I, had well some, I had a pair of trainers that uh, somebody got me that didn't fit. And I returned them and put 20 quid towards a pair of Nikes. And they're unremarkable, I would say, in terms of trainers. They're, they're comfy, but they're no comfier than the Adidas pair or, or any of the other pairs. The Reebok, I had a pair of Reeboks before that that were pretty comfy. They're, they're, they're unremarkable. Agree, but you and I are the Jack Howells of this. Well, I mean, we're yeah, closer we to Jack Howell than we are to anyone who has an idea of what cool looks like in the, and I'm the doughy uh, one. Uh, trainers. Well, I don't know. Um, I feel like you're the Hewley one. But uh, anyway, um, so much for Nike and things that we uh, are kind of nebulous sense of its brand clout here, which I think we probably both believe in to an extent, but not enough to buy this stock. We had a question uh, come in during the week um, about realty income. Someone asked whether we think this is, or whether maybe I, we uh, think this is a buying opportunity or a red flag with the share price. Um, interesting question. Interesting way of putting that question as well, because for realty income, a low share price really can be a red flag. It's the kind of company that wants to grow and it can't retain its cash and use that to grow because it's a REIT. So it has to pay out dividends. 
Um, and that means that it has, when it needs capital, which it often does because buying buildings to rent out is expensive, it has a couple of options. It can issue shares, which are best done when the share price is high, uh, or it can issue debt, which is best done when interest rates are low. And neither of those things is obviously true at the moment. The share price is currently kind of low and interest rates are currently kind of high. Um, so to an extent, what you're seeing there is a decent justification for a 23% decline year to date in the realty income share price. People who call this a dividend growth stock. Yes, I understand it has grown its dividend every quarter for the last whatever many years it is, uh, whatever many quarters it is, sorry, over 100 quarters, way more than 25 years of annual increases. I continue to think that this dividend CAGR is very, very slow. I think it's growth in name only. It's dividend strictly growth. Uh, stock. Is that number of this dividend higher than last year's number of dividends? Yes. Uh, would you call that growth in any meaningful way? Would you show that to any species of growth investor uh, and say, here you are, look at this growth? No. Um, CAGR is around 3% at the moment, annual growth. That is not impressive with inflation. Uh, I mean, that would be okay with inflation at 2%. It's not great with inflation uh, wherever it is at the moment in the US, 6 ish. Um, so you're currently getting whooped by inflation in the growth area. But you're not just buying the growth, you're buying the dividends. So uh, that's partly why their share price has been coming down. Dividend yield is now closing in on 5%. And what we've been, uh, I think it's largely the result, actually, of people just kind of who are income investors. And there's a good reason to be such a thing if you're of a certain age, rotating out into things that have other better yields, like to an extent cash in some places. We've talked about places offering a better than 5% cash return at the moment. To an extent, bonds, if you're looking at the short term, uh, short term yields are higher than long term yields. So there is a good argument that says, why would you be buying realty income when it had a yield of 4% rather than this bond for a couple of years and then go and look at the REITs afterwards? I don't buy that argument, but um, I absolutely can understand why people would want to make it. It's not crazy. It's not ridiculous. Um, I guess when you're trying to think about realty income, then uh, those are the kind of main factors I see pushing things along at the moment. There isn't anything terrifically new and exciting to to tell you about here. So we're thinking about a couple of issues. Then one is where are they going to get the funds to keep financing stuff from? Um, two is are they going to be in a problem with their debt going forward? And three, can they grow? I mean, I've compared these in the past to a company called Agree Realty, which has a lot of striking similarities to realty income. Similar type of approach, i.e. high quality tenants, reliable payers over ones who are in a difficult position. You can probably gouge them for high margins, but they might go broke. Um, also focused on retail uh, real estate and not mall type real estate, but like shopping uh, shops real estate. Um, and now is a monthly dividend payer, though wasn't when I first introduced it on this show. So very much a kind of smaller version of that. And the advantage of being smaller, which is manifested in their share price, is that it, there are opportunities that are there and meaningfully available to you that are not available to bigger things. Realty income has to try and find a way to push a bigger number higher year over year over year. It's nothing to sneeze at. But um one thing, I guess, then when you look at their debt maturity is their debt maturity realty income is had weighted average of around 6.7 years. They're going to be OK for some time. What interest rates will look like in 6.7 years, I don't know with certainty or I wouldn't be wasting my time trying to describe it here. But um, they are forecast to come down over the next couple. So they should make it through this kind of bump in rates uh, reasonably well unscathed. They have four billion due in 2026, which is their nearest big um, lump 
uh, of stuff that's due. It'll be interesting to see how that goes. In terms of their ability to use debt, because I think they would need to use uh, debt for acquisitions here, I don't like the idea of them issuing shares at the current share price. It's much too low, in my view. Their credit ratings are pretty strong still. They have A or better ratings from, I think, two of the major three credit ratings. I think it's Fitch that they don't have that from, but they are, broadly speaking, um, in pretty good shape. Ratings agencies do like their approach of steady, reliable income here rather than big high margin might disappear though if things get tight they claim that scale size and scale are an advantage and insofar as i could make sense of their investor presentation which in general i find their information very clear very well presented the issue with them and i say issue with them like it's their particular thing it's absolutely not it's the companies across the across the scale thing is they will present what they want you to see and you have to try and read in what they're not wanting you to see or not wanting you to tell you about, whether that's using a weird metric or leaving out some information and so on. But I think what they were trying to tell me uh, on the on the weird graphic they had is that there's a massive market in Europe available to them uh, that they can expand into. The US looks quite crowded real estate wise, especially in this particular sector. So they were talking about net income REITs uh, or net lease REITs, uh, sorry. And they reckon there's a sort of four trillion market in the US and about 150 billions worth of market cap pursuing that four trillions worth of opportunity. OK, take their word for it. Europe, they reckon there's eight trillions worth of stuff available, about four billions worth of market cap um, hunting that down. So there's clearly, they think, uh, a much more fragmented, much smaller uh, set of competitors over in Europe. They anticipate doing deals there. Um, OK. They're the real estate experts might have to kind of take their word for it. And they also maintain they are pre being selective in the acquisition opportunities they pursue here. They typically take on around 10% of the opportunities they find having and screened them and assessed them and evaluated them and made a decision on them. That's up to 15% this year. Uh, view that positively or negatively as you prefer. I wonder whether the real reason is that they're, uh, they view none of these as kind of high enough quality opportunities or whether it's because they just can't raise the funds to pursue them all, which is, um, I guess, the, the real headwind. Anyway, in answer to that question, all that stuff being said, I think the pros outweigh the cons here. I would and am buying this stock at these prices. I think this is a kind of cyclical downturn and I'm fairly bullish for it in the longer term. Is it top of my list of REITs to buy? Maybe, maybe, probably not quite, but uh, I'm happy with it as a kind of steady uh, performance that will do marginally better than the bond over time. Steve, any thoughts? Uh, only quick ones, really, in that um, we we said about six months ago when we covered this that we wondered where realty income was going to head, what direction it was going to head in to, to grow. And they've sort of answered that in a way by buying into a gaming section, um, which uh, they bought from uh, Wind Resorts, I think it was, um, buying into vertical farming, and they've just done a massive sale and lease back uh, with about 650 million quid's worth of um, Asda supermarkets or Asda and Sainsbury supermarkets. So, um, so they've kind of shown us that this is how they're going to try and grow. They're going to try and grow by just continuing doing what they what they do. Um, so I think, like you, 
uh, they're going to be capital starved. I think that's going to be their big issue at the moment. Getting capital at between naught and two and a half percent was really, really easy um, because it didn't really matter if the uh, the you know the property was only going to turn three or four percent a year. It makes sense when you're only paying two percent of the debt. Um, now it's a different story because you're getting debt at what five, six, seven, eight percent, and you've got to somehow get ten percent out of a out of a, um, a real estate deal and get it back unless you think that it's a bit of short-term pain and rates come down and you can refinance that debt in a few years time at two percent or whatever you two and a half percent and and uh, or even four percent you know you only need to look at a deal that's you know is equal to the debt pile so that's a risk for me um that's something that you would have to you'd have to trust the management's knowledge of um the you know the real estate sector and and the debt sector and how they think interest rates are going to go and they also have to be right um so i'm not avoiding reach steve i'm i'm not even really avoiding realty income i feel like this is probably one of those moments that we'll look at in 10 years time and go yeah it was really obvious that this was going to happen you know what i mean rates were going to come back down to two percent stop people defaulting on all the mortgages and realty income was just going to continue back to growth but i think hindsight's great i don't have the ability of uh, uh you know of hindsight in my hindsight if you know what i mean yeah, I call it a foresight in that way. But yeah, uh, we'll um, we'll see what happens there. I know Paul is also an owner of this. Um, he calls himself a dividend growth investor, and he made some noises about being available um, this week. But he then uh, unfortunately had some other stuff kind of um, going on. But it's a big part of his kind of uh, portfolio, I think, and an important part of his sort of thesis going forwards. Um. That tends to be the way I think about realty income. I don't think anything massively has changed. There might come a time, I think, where you see certain REITs getting into trouble um, as interest rates go up. That's generally not too good for them. I'm not sure I think that time is now or indeed that soon for um, realty income. I guess one last thing then uh, before we wind up um, here, I'll... um, just tackle another question that we had come in as well that uh, slightly confused us. Partly it's a really interesting question um, that was, how is it that a company can be pre-tax profitable and post-tax unprofitable? Because don't you just pay tax on a, a certain percent, whatever that is, wherever country you're from, however you're regulated, on your earnings, uh, basically. And so there's something right to that thought of how is it then that companies go from being pre-tax profitable to post-tax unprofitable? We couldn't find an example of this um, in in either of our cases or nothing kind of jumped out. So do pop in the comments below if you have an example of something that's profitable on a pre-tax basis and then not profitable on a net income uh, basis, we might call it. The nearest thing I could find um, here was a couple of things from uh, a couple of stocks I own, actually, from Kraft Heinz and Berkshire Hathaway. Uh, and these have two different kind of stories, but they are both sort of related. So. 2018, Kraft Heinz recorded a net loss per share of $8.36. And I was very, very new to the investing world back then and sort of thought to myself, how the hell is this company that's been around for however long uh, has a pretty basic, steady business here that isn't meant to fluctuate very much, um, selling food effectively or tomato ketchup and the like to people, not able to turn a profit in a kind of ordinary-ish uh, year. What is the matter with these people? Have they suddenly found their costs have gone above their revenue or something? Uh, the answer is no, uh, they didn't do that. What they did was write down um, a 
about uh, well they recorded a 12.6 billion dollar loss on the basis of writing down the value of some brands that they were uh carrying and this shows up on their income statement you might think that's a weird place for this to show up because they don't actually kind of lose money like that something they own is worth a lot less than it once was worth uh, or at least once assumed to be worth i suppose uh, is a better way of putting it so it's absolutely right in this case that that's uh, a kind of non um a non-cash loss but that should show up and to our kind of questioner's point that should show up before the level of tax uh in this case so it should be a, a kind of pre-tax um deduction that goes on here you should be showing as pre-tax unprofitable after tax unprofitable uh as well and i think it's just a feature of the way that certain um websites and stuff that we use to get financial information on companies from advertise these uh, or, or work these things out between them so i was looking at quick fs which is one of the best places, I think, for finding um, uh, basically uh, info about companies and financial data. And they give you 10 years pretty much on the screen as you look at it and log in, uh, not even log in, go onto their website. Um, lots of coverage from all around the world. I think it's generally pretty accurate. But they tend to apply all of these accounting adjustments after uh, the level of operating income, i.e. income before uh, interest and taxes. So they were showing them as making $5.7 in um uh, an operating income 2018 and then showing a minus $8.36 per share uh, loss because of that big write down. And it can be hard to see why that's happening because the only things coming off after operating income are usually interest payments on debt, which I suppose could take you negative, but that's not the same thing. And then tax comes off after that as well. In fact, it comes off as the, the kind of last thing before net income. Berkshire Hathaway has a similar issue. It has a big stock portfolio. That stock portfolio goes up. That stock portfolio goes down, especially in the last quarter. I imagine it's gone down. Um, they also have to put that through as a kind of uh, non-cash loss. Um, and that's supposed to show up after the level of operating income some t- or before the level of operating income, I think. And sometimes it kind of shows up after if you look on various places, like I think maybe Yahoo Finance might do that as well. So in a case where they, if you measure the kind of cash from their operations, I know that's a cash flow uh, term here as in net income adding back all the non-cash stuff. That's a better way to measure a business. So Buffett always says he really dislikes this way of accounting for movements in the stock portfolio. But it's not really the case, I guess, that they're pre-tax profitable or not just pre-tax profitable. These kind of non-cash stuff um, tend to sometimes get factored in after uh operating income has been kind of counted if you look on one website rather than another that's the closest i came to finding an example here uh steve do you have anything better yeah not really um i i maybe in my misunderstanding of the question i think perhaps we're getting a bit sort of stuck between gap accounting and tax accounting which are ever so slightly different so um Companies can record allowances for bad debts, um, sales returns, inventory obsolescence, and things like asset impairment under GAP. But their allowances, depending on jurisdiction, jurisdictions, aren't necessarily allowed or permitted under tax accounting. So my thought is that perhaps uh, somebody is looking at GAP accounting um, uh, for for the earnings and then seeing the tax come off and uh, and seeing a, a loss overall perhaps out of that that's all i can i can think of um, that's different it, it would have been handy to have a, a, a um an example of where where um ben had seen this and then we could you know we, we could have gone through the example and do like a worked example so um yeah not really sure on that one to be honest but i think you've covered the vast majority of it 
Yeah, okay. If anyone has got an example that they'd like us to kind of work our way through, I don't just mean an example of anything accounting. This can be hard work for two guys, neither of whom is an accountant in their day job. Um, and incidentally, this is why I'm always frustrated that actual accountants on YouTube who have YouTube channels don't talk about this kind of thing, which seems to me where they could really obviously add some important value of saying, hey, look, that loss thing isn't really a loss thing or it's not a loss you should worry about or whatever. Everyone else seems to be. Nonetheless, um, if you have an example of something you'd like us to uh, look at that looks like it was pre-tax profitable and post-tax unprofitable, um, we'd be really interested to see it, I think, um, it's, even if we can't figure out why, but we'd be really interested to see it. Um, so do pop that down below in the comments with uh, a year and a company. It would be uh, good for us to have a look. Um, that's pretty much all from me. Steve, is there anything else on your list to talk about? Uh, no, that's it from me, Steve. Cool. Then in that case, thank you very much for watching our show. I've been Steve W. He's been Steve D. We will see you next week at the same time. Bye for now.